0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Laura Witterne Keller on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, The Miracle Case, Film Censorship in the Supreme Court. She co-wrote the book with Ray Haberski. I enjoyed it very much. I'm a bit of a film buff. And one of the questions that I have always had as a film buff and a historian is how we got from a situation in which almost anything could be Censored. That is during the Progressive Era, to the point at which almost nothing can be censored. That is the era we are in today. Laura and Ray do a terrific job of explaining uh, how we traversed that vast territory from um, all, you know very uh, liberal censorship to almost no censorship at all. Uh, you know, and it does also raise the question as to whether um, we got the uh, We got the result we wanted from our shift toward uh, First Amendment absolutism, which I I think it would be an accurate description of where we are today. Anyway, I enjoyed talking to Laura, and here's the interview. Hi, Laura.
1: Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm doing very well, thanks, and I'm delighted to be back with you again. Well,
0: you know, we're very happy to have you. I always say at the end of every interview, you know, if your next project is about to come out, you know, please call me and I'll interview you again. And, and Laura was gracious enough to do that. And so today we're happy to have Laura Witter and Keller on the show, and we'll be talking about a book that she co-authored with Ray Haberski. Um, am I pronouncing his name right? Habers? Yes,
2: Habersky, yeah, Habersky, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, And mm-hmm. the book is called The Miracle Case, Film Censorship, and the Supreme Court. I have to say that I've, I've told Laura this before, and if you listen to the other interview, you know that I'm kind of a film buff myself, and I, I'm extraordinarily interested in these topics. So it's a real privilege and honor uh, and treat for me to, to be able to talk uh, with someone who knows so much about these things, um, and Laura certainly is that person. So uh, if I could again, in our customary fashion, Laura, uh, ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and how you became interested in these things.
1: Oh, sure. Um, I grew up in New York State, and am a product of the State University of New York system, and then went to Penn State, uh, go Nittany Lions for my master's degree, and then came back to uh, University of Albany for a Ph.D. Uh, later in life, I had uh, raised my family when I came back for the Ph.D., and um, then went and taught for three years at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, and I am now back at the University of Albany for two years as a visiting assistant professor Uh of U.S. history and the way I got involved in this stuff was um, it was one of those hi how are you conversations in the hallway when I was a first semester grad student and most first semester grad students are casting about for some sort of topic to do and a professor that I had had when I was an undergrad here was telling me about a marvelous database of film scripts at the New York State Archives, which are conveniently right down the road <laughs> from the University at Albany. That's great. And he said that the archivists were complaining that no one came down and used this, this database to do policy or political studies uh-huh. from, that people were using it for social and cultural, but not for policy or political work. And so I thought, wow. Well, I'm a policy historian, I'll bite. So I went down and took a look at what they had, and mm-hmm. that led me to my first book, which was Freedom of the Screen, mm-hmm. Legal Challenges to State Film Censorship. I was looking at the people who challenged the state film censors, and that first book looks at the people who started challenging starting in 1909 and kept challenging right up into the uh, 1970s in in Maryland. And this second book now comes out of my fascination with the central case in that longer story of the people who challenged governmental film censorship, and that is The Miracle Case.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is the topic of this uh, current book and the one we'll be talking about. One thing I would, uh, just to digress for a moment, um, one thing I was very interested to see and also interested to read you um, discussing was the process of collaboration, and and the reason I mention this is I I have done some collaborative work in in my own research, and I I really quite liked it, and I know that in other fields, my wife is a mathematician, that collaboration is a constant. They very rarely do anything alone, Um, and it's certainly true in the lab sciences. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you came to work with Ray Habersky and how you found the process of collaboratively writing and researching a book.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, and I even mentioned this in, in the preface and acknowledgments that when, when historians, when we historians tend to tell people that we're collaborating on a project, we very often get sort of concerned faces. Like, <laughs> oh, really? As historians tend to work alone, we mm-hmm. tend to work on our own. We have lots of support, of course, but we, we, we produce our own research, which, as you say, in the in other social sciences is, is completely different. I mean, you've seen some psychological studies that have had, you know, eight and ten authors. Mm-hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: listed, and they they can't quite understand that we do work uh, alone but what I found with, the, with working with, with Raymond Herberski, who is my co-author, who is um, on a distinguished Fulbright this really? year, wow. I must say, and in Denmark. He's in wow. Denmark right now. Um, and the way Ray and I came to collaborate on this is I had posted it, – it's the Internet version, or it's the a- academic version, I should say, of Internet dating. Uh-huh. I had posted uh, a message on the H-film list looking mm-hmm. for information about this this case, about the Joseph Burstyn case. And Ray Herbersky was the person who answered my query.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we started you know, sharing emails, and we realized quite early on that we were working on different things, but the end result we were working toward was the same. Let me back up here just a second. I'm a policy historian, a political historian, mm-hmm. and Ray is a cultural historian. Mm-hmm. Now, he was working on... Uh, film critics mm-hmm. at the time, and looking at the film critics who were looking at the, who had gotten involved in the controversy over the miracle case, which we'll talk about I'm sure in, in mm-hmm. a minute, and I was looking at it from the standpoint of a policy and a political perspective of the people who were challenging this stuff, mm-hmm. so even though we were coming at the case from vastly different angles,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what we were working on was basically the same thing, and that was the influence that people had on freedom of movies. Mm-hmm. On, on getting movies freed from governmental control
2: mm-hmm.
1: and freed from Hollywood's self-censorship control.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we decided that, as in all Internet dating scenarios, we decided after a few emails that we should really meet somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that opportunity came at the Researching New York Conference in 2001. Mm-hmm. Where I came and presented a paper, and I was, uh, I was at the conference because it's held at the university at Albany every year. And so we met, and from that point on, we decided that we needed to produce a collaborated book on this one case. Mm -hmm. So this has been a long time in the the works. This has been uh, quite a long time that he and I have been working on producing a book on this. And we realized from the beginning that we wanted to not just tell the story from a legal and a political standpoint, which is what I generally tend to do, and not just from a cultural standpoint, which is what Ray was tending to do, but to put the two together Mm -hmm. to make a more expansive story, mm-hmm. to look not just at the lit- legal and the political ramifications
2: mm-hmm. that
1: this case had, but also look at the broader implications that the case had in the broader popular culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out marvelously, I can tell you that, having read the book. I, you know, Just to speculate a little bit, I, I think that really the fact that um, we tell stories has a lot to do with the fact that we work alone, and and, and, and by that I mean... You know, uh, storytelling is a is a kind of. Uh, it's, you, you can't have two people tell a story. A person's story is somewhat authorial. I think it's they are, they are they are somehow connected with it. I guess I'm just speculating here. I don't know because I know that in math, for example, like I said, my math my 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 wife's in the math department here. Uh, you know, they prove things. They don't tell stories really. Right. They they put things together. Now now several people can build a building or build a proof, but several people it's it's difficult to tell a story. And and uh, you know I. I've wanted to do more of it myself, and I admire you for having undertaken it. And I, I, hope it serves as a model for other people because I was, you know, in the times that I have worked with other people uh, on historical projects, I've, i found that the dialogue ha- has been the richest part of it. Just, just having someone there to, to bounce ideas off and to come up with new things is, is, has, was extraordinarily um, productive for me. But uh, it, it is an unusual thing, and again, uh, yeah, I applaud you for, for undertaking it. Well, let's launch into the book Ooh, itself. Uh, well,
1: let me just back up for one second, okay. though, on the collaboration because I do want to but uh, you know agree with what you what you've just said when you get a good person to collaborate with when you have you know some kind of uh, synchronization from the very beginning uh-huh. and you can realize that you're working on the same t- type of thing but coming at it from slightly different directions all it does is makes you it is leave you with a broader and a more inclusive story. I, there's no question that I yeah. could not have written this book by myself. Yeah, no, I think, I think, and I don't, and because you know the the cultural component that Ray brought to this is so critical when you're mm-hmm. talking about things like this, mm-hmm. and especially like the last two chapters of the entire book
2: mm-hmm.
1: are Ray's work, where he looks at what's mm-hmm. the broader implication when we do free movies from governmental mm-hmm. censorship.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What happens? Mm-hmm. What happens to the dialogue? What happens to movies? Mm-hmm. What happens to culture? Mm-hmm. And those are the the uh, the, the collab- That's where the collaboration came into play, and mm-hmm. it is undoubtedly a much better book because of it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's funny you mention that because I was recently thinking about and talking to people uh, about the um, the recent decision by the California voters to accept a constitutional amendment that banned gay marriage, and you know from a it, it, it nicely. Um, i think uh, exemplifies just what you're talking about the difference between the legal and the and and the cultural context because you know by by legal lights it's it's not hard to, to deduce from the various principles of the constitution as they are written in the black letter law and law that is accumulated that we probably should extend um, you know the rights of marriage to to same sex couples but the, the cultural context is entirely different. You know, We, we don't think about it in terms of black-letter law. You, you would never understand why the citizens of California did that if you just looked at the black-letter law. You, you would never get it at all. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that cultural context is extraordinarily important, and I think it's extraordinarily important here as well.
1: I think that's a good analogy, too. Yeah, I, hadn't, I
0: hadn't really thought about it until now, but I think, that, I think that's right. I really have been discussing mm-hmm. it with a lot of people because it does seem so obvious that we would do this, but then again... It isn't. <laughs> I just find that amazing. Um, so anyway, let's launch into the book itself. Sorry about that okay. digression, folks. Um, it's been on my mind recently. Uh, the, the, uh, the the Let's start by talking about the uh, um, legal context. And I remember this uh, when we talked about your first book. Um, something that surprised me is that uh, films were uh, not until quite recently uh, um, protected. Uh, by the First Amendment or the, the right for free speech. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the origins of film and their legal status and how that uh, status was um, finally stamped or codified in the 1915 decision, the name of which I cannot remember. <laughs>
1: the 1915?
0: Yeah, isn't there uh, 1915?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah, Mutual Film.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. So That's, if you could just,
1: yeah. Sure, uh, when movies started when movies came about they they burst onto the cultural scene very quickly and they came on in the 1898 is usually the, the uh, one of the dates that's given there are several other dates that float around but it's right at the turn of the 20th century which as you know american historians know that is that is the, that is right in the middle of the of the progressive mm-hmm. era and the progressive era to oversimplify it, was an era when many intellectuals and many elite people, many many people who were making policy, believed that the common good was more important than individual rights.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so in, an, in, a, in a big, broad legal culture like that, when you have something that bursts onto the cultural scene uh, rapidly that no one has ever seen before, uh, no one is, is is aware of where these things are coming from. With these images that are larger than life, uh, people doing things that we've never been able to see people do before, almost like appealing to the human sense of voyeurism.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that
1: kind of thing. Some progressives sound very threatening. In mm-hmm. fact, a lot of people, a lot of uh, what I refer to as moral reformers, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, uh, people who are, who are truly and sincerely concerned about the, the fate of society, uh, these moral reformers looked at these movies and said, we can't just let these things go. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know who's making these images, and mm-hmm. some of them were, you know, pretty racy stuff. The, you know, mm-hmm. the very early films um, that were started were, were pretty racy stuff. And so, in that progressive climate, the idea that movies should be controlled for the greater good was something that was. Not a long shot. I mean, it was not difficult for many people to accept that, oh yes, we need to control this. This is a, and every time, you know, media historians have looked at this, and every time we've gotten a new medium. There have been calls for its control. Mm -hmm. We need to control this. It's frightening. It's dangerous. It's challenging social norms. We need to have some sort of control over this. Mm -hmm. So, that was the the era in which movies just happened to burst onto the scene, was in that kind of a a legal and political climate. Yeah, if I could just.
0: I was going to say it's very curious because this word progressivism is a kind of historical faux ami, as our French colleagues would say, because their progressivism isn't really like our progressivism. At all, it's ours is much more libertarian than theirs. I mean, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. of people like Margaret Sanger and these other people who are you know very much in support of things like eugenics. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, and they were all for censorship. They thought censorship was a really good idea. Um, whereas, right. you know, our progressivism doesn't have any of that because it has this sort of solid strain of – and we'll come and we'll talk about this in a second – this kind of ACLU-esque libertarianism when it comes to expression. But they didn't believe those things at all. So okay. uh, I, just, I think it's just important to point out that the, peop- the people that we call progressive, and progressive are not like uh, Al Franken.
1: <laughs> I guess. Yes, very, very different <laughs> not words. At very, yeah. Yeah, very not at all. Yeah, very different words. Yeah. Yeah. So, for a lot of people, the idea that movies should be controlled was um, was you know just something that didn't didn't deserve a whole lot of thought. It was just sort of yeah, you know, obviously. Like, true. Just,
0: yeah, no, that's right.
1: By the same token, the movie industry decided it needed to fight back about against getting any kind of federal censorship. Mm-hmm. So, what we get in the progressive era is we get states start passing their own censorship laws. The first one is Pennsylvania, with a law that goes into effect in 1911, and then we get, in in rapid succession, Ohio and Kansas. We get Maryland by 1916, and then we get sort of a break for a while, and then we get New York and Virginia in 1921 and 1922, at the very, very tail end. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, some historians would say the Progressive Era is pretty much over by this point, but Mm -hmm. that idea of necessary control for the benefit of all is still there. Mhm. And then so but the movie industry is saying, well, you know, the state censorship isn't good, but what they were really worried about was the possibility of federal censorship.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that we never get.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: one of the questions that a lot of people have asked is why no federal censorship. And mm-hmm. I don't think there is An easy way to come up with with an answer to that, except that the states that were censoring, and while the states were censoring, these are mostly in the east,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. with the exception of of Kansas and Mm -hmm. Ohio in the Midwest. Those states that were censoring, also, what we don't think about when we look at just the states that, that adopted censorship was how many local censor boards there were. Mm -hmm. And there were local censor boards all across the country. Mm -hmm. A city like Chicago had a censor board. Seattle Mm -hmm. had a censor board. Memphis had a censor board. And so most people are going to be, I think, this is just my supposition, they're going to be relatively satisfied to know that the cities Mm -hmm. are going to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. Because the way film distribution worked in in those days, if a film distributor had to cut a film in order to satisfy the dictates of a municipal censor board, they weren't likely to put those scenes back in when it went out into a traveling roadshow in the countryside. Mm -hmm. So while I can't give a definitive answer as to why no federal censorship, Mm -hmm. that seems to be about as close as I can get to a reason. Mm -hmm. But the the threat of federal censorship is always hanging over the motion picture industry. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right
1: up into into the 1950s.
0: Yes, they're happy to have it in the states and the localities. They like that idea.
1: Well, in some respects, they did. The exhibitors, in particular, were happy with the idea of state and local censorship, because for them, it was like a good he- housekeeping cent- seal of approval. For them, they could if, if the movie was playing and local groups were upset, they could say, "Well, you know, this, the censor board, board passed it. You know, go argue with them. don't bother me." Whereas before, exhibitors were on the front lines mm-hmm. of this kind of peer uh, pressure group. Mm-hmm. Activity. Mm-hmm. So the exhibitors certainly were very happy with with uh, governmental censorship.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, tell us how all this uh, culminates, if culminate is the right word, uh, in the case um, Mutual versus uh, Ohio in 1915. In, ni- in
1: 1915, these uh, these censor boards had been springing up all across the country, and one company named Mutual Film, which was both a film distributor and the maker of newsreels. Mm -hmm. decided that this was going to really impact their profit because the the movie industry not only had to submit the censorship in these places, but they also paid for the privilege.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So it was the motion picture distributor who submitted the film to the censors and had to pay a fee for the censorship of the movie. And Mm -hmm. so to smaller distributors, that was a big cut into their profits Mm -hmm. plus in these days it was very important to open a big blockbuster type film a major feature film to open it the same day in different localities Mm -hmm. and they if they had to submit their film to a censor board they never knew whether that would delay the opening of the film Mm -hmm. so it it was a a a matter of something that they couldn't predict Mm -hmm. so this company mutual film brings suit against Ohio and Pennsylvania and claims that this is an imposition on the First Amendment, their First Amendment rights to produce movies. Mm -hmm. Both of those cases in the state courts are shot down, Mm -hmm. and Mutual appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. And Mutual uh, gets the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court takes one look at this and says, you know... This doesn't have anything to do with free speech rights. It doesn't have anything to do with free press These are not legitimate vehicles with communication. These movies are and, and the words they use are Spectacles mm-hmm. and they compared them to circuses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the very first pronouncement that comes from the highest court in the land on the issue of movie freedom is a resounding slap mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. movies don't deserve any first amendment protection mm-hmm. and that case that precedent will stand until 1952. Mm-hmm. So that is the Supreme Court giving its its seal of approval to state and local motion picture censorship mm-hmm. as being constitutional.
0: Mm-hmm. I do I do kind of wonder just to put ourselves in the in the seats of the Supreme Court justices at this time. Uh, what did free speech cover? The, the reason I ask that question is that you know it, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, is it the case, for example, that plays are covered by the First Amendment Uh, or puppet shows or, you know, I I, I don't really know. What, what, What analogies did they have to draw on when thinking about the exhibition of films?
1: Well, the concept of free speech in 1915, you're absolutely correct, was very different from what it is today. And one of the arguments that Ray and I make in this book is that the attempts by the film distributors to keep challenging these censorship statutes, when they finally began to have some success after 1952, immensely contributed to our current understanding of free speech. Mm -hmm. In 1915, the concept of free speech would be closer to the idea that you have the right to speak majoritarian views. You have the right to say things that other people would not find shocking or mm-hmm. deplorable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very different era and it's hard for us um, particularly academics, to go back and look at an era like this and understand how different the view of free speech was in those days. The mm-hmm. Supreme Court would not rule definitively even on the issue of newspaper censorship mm-hmm. until 1931.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so
1: even until 1931, up until 1931, the issue of whether even newspapers could be shut down by a governmental entity because they had... Printed something that someone else found objectionable mm-hmm. that 's not settled until nineteen thirty one so this is a, it, the evolution of free speech across the the twentieth century is both very complicated and very interesting to look at how the concept changed and how many different people were coming at the idea of free speech and how those decisions all all sort of snowballed into what our current understanding of free speech is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the, those motion picture distributors who are challenging these cases all along like joseph burston in the miracle case had a major hand in our understanding of
2: free
0: speech mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting it seems to me that they took a rather what we would think of as a very narrow view of the first amendment and that is that it protected political speech and it it, uh, it 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 protected, as you put it, majoritarian speech. But you couldn't just go out and um, say any old thing, especially if it were offensive to the community in which you were saying it. That that was grounds enough to have it censored, as I understand it.
1: Or well, we didn't have a great deal of censorship in the United States in terms of censor boards yeah. or in terms of bureaucrats who could look at things. I mean, that that really only exists for for movies. So that's 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 an unusual situation. But yeah. things could be shut down. After they were said or after they were published, we had a lot of cases in the 20th century of mm-hmm. books that had been published, yeah. and after the fact, then they are yeah. uh, they're prosecuted for obscenity or yeah. immorality or indecency or whatever. Yeah. The the motion picture situation is quite different.
0: Yeah, because they have prior because, restraint there. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Just explain what prior restraint is for our our listeners.
1: Okay. Prior restraint is the idea that it is acceptable for a governmental agency of some sort to look at something before it's seen by anyone else and say, yes, this can go, or no, it can't be seen, or, or yes, it can be seen, but only with certain changes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Prior restraint is something that uh, that is usually considered anathema in both the English tradition of law and the American tradition mm-hmm. of, of law, mm-hmm. although there's a great deal of debate about just how how anathema that was. Uh, There's a lot of scholarly debate on that exact topic. Mm -hmm. But prior restraint is exactly what we have in these motion picture statutes because these are bureaucrats who are statutorily empowered to sit and look at movies before anyone else can see them and say, yep, that's fine, that can go, put a seal of approval on it, Mm or no, this film is banned entirely, don't even bring it back to us a second time, Mm -hmm. or the third option, yeah, you can show the movie, but you need to remove... Thirteen feet in, in real three, mm-hmm.
2: right. and the these nasty words disc. can't
1: be shown yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the concept of prior restraint. That the, the the speech in this case, the movie, what the movie is trying to to convey, can't be part of the marketplace of ideas. Uh huh. As Oliver Wendell Holmes phrased it, it yeah. doesn't get into the marketplace of ideas because it's never even seen. It never sees the light of day. Yeah, yeah. I That's the concept saying. of prior restraint.
0: And here I think we can see the the um, the cultural moment a little bit because I, I'm reminded one of the founding fathers or somebody who to whom these things are often attributed said that. Uh, Free speech is the right to say anything you like and the good sense not to. Um, it's, it's almost as if that at about this time, a lot of Americans lost the good sense not to and started to want to say just about anything they could think about. Um, and so at that point, since mores were changing, the law, I think, had to find a way to follow. And, and that's really the story that you tell, because people were hungering for this kind of expression. They were... They were voting with their uh, you know their dollars going to um, theaters to watch these things, and you, know, you could actually tell a similar story about pornography. um not that these films were pornographic in any way, but there was obviously tremendous demand for it at this time um, and then it was only later that the law kind of followed suit to 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 say that that people had the right to to look at these sorts of things. And as we'll point out in a second, they do it under a very interesting rubric, which is as art, Um, and we can talk about the merits of that uh, argument in a second. But first, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Joseph uh, Burstyn, who uh, looks like a really fascinating guy.
1: Joseph Burstyn is a a fascinating man. He is the film distributor. He was an importer of fine European films. He came to the United States as an immigrant from Poland, he came as a diamond cutter actually Mm -hmm. and uh, but apparently adored movies and rented a yiddish theater in new york city and made a profit on a film that he showed there that seed money led him into his own film importation business in the nineteen thirties he developed a reputation for bringing in only the finest european films and he truly seemed to believe that it was his mission in life to bring European films to American audiences. Uh And so he develops this reputation throughout the 1930s and into the 1940s. And in late 1949, he comes in contact with this movie called Il Miracolo. It's an Italian movie made by Roberto Rossellini, and incidentally, I wanted to ask you, as a film buff, if you'd ever seen this movie.
0: You know, I tried to see it before I had this interview, and I have not and could not. Yeah. I'm going to
1: have to send you a copy. I would like
0: to get one. No, my video store doesn't have it, and I don't think it's on, no. ne- it's not, it's not on Netflix, is it?
1: No. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's only a 40-minute yeah. film. Right. We would so. call it
0: a TV show. The, but I, would, I tried to see it. I did. I went down to my local video store and said, hey, can I get this film? They're like, no. <laughs> yes.
1: I would love it, to it see took- it it took me a long time to track it down i, I will i will send it to you uh, it, it's a 40 minute italian film made by rossellini who you know film uh, buffs in our listening uh, audience will remember as one of the leading neorealists coming out uh, in the uh, revitalized italian film industry right after world war 2 The movie was made as a vehicle for Rossellini's girlfriend at the time, named Anna Magnani. She was Italy's most beloved actress, Uh and she is an amazing, amazing actress. Anyway, it's a Roberto Rossellini, Federico Fellini collaboration. Uh Fellini wrote the script, and Fellini actually appears in the film. Uh Anyway... Burstyn found this movie at the Venice Film Festival and absolutely fell in love with the movie, decided he had to bring it back to the United States. So he did.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He brought it back to the United States. He submitted it to the New York State censors because Burstyn is based in New York City. That's If you were going to make money in the imported film business in the 1930s and 40s, you, you had to be in New York. That's where the big market was. Mm-hmm. So he submits the film to the the censors, and they approve it. Mm -hmm. He gets it back, and he didn't exhibit it for a while. He sort of sat on it for a while, and then he decided he wanted to show it, but it's only 40 minutes long, and by 1950, people won't pay to see a 40-minute film. So he puts it together with two other short films that he had hanging around and came up with a theme for the three movies, and the theme was Ways of Love. Mm-hmm. He titled the movie Ways of Love. He put all three together, and he sent it back to the New York State censors for you know approval of the entire thing. Again, the New York State censors said, fine, here's mm-hmm. your seal. He opens it at the Paris Theater, which was the premier art theater in New York City at that time, in December of 1950. It's the Christmas season. And he gets pretty good reviews. He got some wonderful reviews. He got some lukewarm reviews. A couple of reviewers said, you know, this might be a little hard for um, for really religious people. It might offend their sensibilities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But only a couple, and most of it was pretty positive. And so Joseph Burstyn thought, well, okay, here I have this wonderful movie, and he sat back to make, you know, a small but decent profit, and then literally all hell broke loose mm-hmm. because this very... Respected film importer wound up being told by the management of the theater that their license to show anything had been threatened oh by the New York City license yeah.
0: commission. Right, right. So before you go on, could you just give us a very, uh, I guess that's redundant. Can you give us a précis of of the miracle? What, what exactly happens in it that might be offensive to somebody? Okay. Actually, 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 that's a legitimate. I mean, it's a it's a sincere question because I read your praise of it, and as I say, I I tried to f- I tried to I tried to watch the film, but I couldn't really find anything very offensive in it. So please tell us, yeah, what people. Right. Well. About it. He-
1: it was offensive to some Catholics, but, and I can't even say that it was offensive to all Catholics, because it wasn't, because it creates a controversy within Catholics, within Catholic society. Mm-hmm. Those who say it's it's a mockery of the virgin birth, and those who don't, but yeah. let me back up. I'm getting okay. ahead of myself here. Yeah. It's, it's the story of a demented peasant woman. She's obviously unbalanced. She's a religious zealot. She's on the hillside one day, and she's tending a flock of goats. And Along comes a stranger who is marching, who was, who was hiking past her on a hiking trail. She sees this man, who happens to be Federico Fellini in the movie, mm-hmm. she sees him and becomes convinced that he is St. Joseph.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: St. Joseph is her favorite saint. And she starts rattling on and on, you've come to me, you've come to me on earth, uh, you know, take me away from this terrible you know, earthly orb that I'm in, and she becomes absolutely enraptured with this stranger. Well, the stranger is kind of bemused at first, listening to this woman rattling on and on, and then he, and then he starts to think, apparently, hmm, I've got a jug of wine with me. So he takes out <laughs> his jug of wine, and he starts drinking, and he shares it with this young woman.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she, the more she drinks, the more rapturous she becomes, and finally she falls on the ground, and he's lying next to her, and just as she completely seems to lose control of herself, the screen fades to black. Yeah. We see absolutely nothing. Right. The very next screen, we see her coming down the mountainside. She's a little confused, doesn't really know what's happened, and she's bringing her goats down the mountainside. And then the next scenes, we see her in the village. She's playing with some village children, and she faints.
2: Mm hmm
1: When she faints, the village women come over to her aid, and they realize that she's pregnant. Mm hmm And that's apparently the first that she's realized that she's pregnant. And she says, it must be the will of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the villagers then begin to ridicule her.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, here's this crazy woman, and now she thinks that she's, you know, having, you know, the, the child of St. Joseph, and they ridicule her piteously, and she leaves. she's cast out mm-hmm. by the, the inhumanity of these villagers and the nastiness of their, of their taunting. She leaves and wanders the mountainsides alone. It's it's very poignant. And then when she realizes that she's ready to give birth, she starts to make her way back to the village, but realizes when she sees the outskirts of the village that she can't go back there.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: she and one solitary goat, who's her only companion, make their way up the mountainside. She finds a, a church that's deserted and uh, finds a door. Actually, it's interesting. The goat leads her to the door, and she walks through the door and gives birth in the church. hmm and the end of the movie is her saying, my son, my love, and that's it.
2: Hmm.
1: That's the whole movie.
2: And so
0: Catholics then saw this as a kind of allegory of the virgin birth.
1: A, that, mockery. A, a mockery. A mockery of yes. the virgin birth. Okay,
0: yes, yes. I, I say allegory, that's they say mockery. It's funny, have you seen the, um, this is kind of a wacky analogy, but have you seen the, uh, madonna video called like a prayer for the song like a prayer
1: years ago when it first came yeah, out. yeah well end. you
0: should look at it again
1: because
0: it's uh it's pretty much this movie as far as i can tell i remember it very well it, it offended a lot of people Uh, But all of the same things. She doesn't get pregnant, but there's a certain, there's a a notion of some, well, anyway, you should watch it, and and I would recommend that It's actually quite a good song, and uh, it's quite a good video, but it's uh, the the modern equivalent thereof. So, anyway, uh, this had already, the the movie had already sparked some criticism in Europe, is that correct, prior to its um, release in the United States?
1: Actually, not really. really? The the Italians had a censor board, and the Italian censor board passed it. The Mm -hmm. Vatican didn't have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. The only real indication that there might be a problem was when Burstyn saw the movie at the Venice Film Festival. Uh There's one report, and I haven't been able to substantiate this with another report, but one report that a group of women from the Catholic Legion of Decency in the United States Uh warned him. That if he brought that film to the United States, it might be trouble.
0: I see. So anyway, he does bring it to the United States, and um, how does how do the Catholic authorities become apprised of its putatively offensive content?
1: Well, I, I guess they time, go
0: watch it. No, they probably don't watch it. I...
1: Well, actually, no, they do. Uh-huh. At this time, the Catholic Legion of Decency was an organization that was both um, um, a mass organization of, of Catholics who took a pledge. Not to see any movies that were considered vile, or any movies that had been condemned by the church, and the Legion of Decency was also a group of reviewers who went and saw every movie and then rated those movies. Mm-hmm. So if the if the Legion of Decency rated it okay, you could see that movie and that was fine. Mm-hmm. If they condemned a the movie, that was actually a, a, a case of mortal sin. Mm-hmm. If you, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not absolutely sure on that, but it was it was sin, anyway, you to go me. see yeah. the movie, and the Legion of Decency did condemn the miracle, uh-huh. but they also notified the License Commissioner in, in New York City that he should go see the movie. The License Commissioner went to the Paris Theater, saw the movie, and said that he was personally and professionally offended, mm. that he found it blasphemous, and he... he threatened to remove the theater's license if they didn't stop showing the movie. At this point, Joseph Burston says, Wait a minute, I've got a license from the state of New York.
2: Yeah. How
1: can this license commissioner threaten the theater? And from there, it just ramped up and ramped up until Archbishop Cardinal Spellman, who is was considered at the time to be probably the most authoritative Catholic in the United States, uh-huh then denounces the miracle from the pulpit.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: he calls on all Catholics not to see the movie. Uh-huh. And that's when Joseph Burstyn decides he needs to take legal action to stop the licensed commissioner from keeping the movie from being shown.
0: Yeah, now I haven't and had... That's- that. Yeah, I was going to say okay. I, I I haven't had a lot of a contact. Luckily in my life, I have not had a lot of contact with lawyers or the courts. But I suspect that when you sue the state of New York, it's going to be an expensive proposition. Why did Why did Burson decide to um to, to kind of to go in with both feet uh, with this thing? What, what What was it in him that he wanted to? I mean, he wasn't a rich man. He didn't have huge financial backing or anything, did he?
1: No, actually, he was a small businessman. I mean, he was a small film importer, and there wasn't a lot of profit to be made in, in foreign films in those days. He was trying very hard to turn that around, and he was, he was working toward that. But he, he personally did not have a lot of money. I don't know how much money he did have, but certainly not a great deal. But Burstyn had had a run-in with the New York censors before in 1936. He and a partner at that time had also taken the censors to court over the censorship of a French film. That they were that they were trying to show, and Bernstein later said, "You know, every time I felt that I had to submit my film to the censors, I felt like I was in a dirty business. Uh-huh. It felt like I was doing something wrong and had to seek permission in order to do that." Yeah. And he was a very principled man, apparently, uh-huh. and just decided that he'd had enough. He he decided that this was. It should be unconstitutional. It was a violation of his right to free speech. It was a violation of the right of audiences to see what they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And so he took his own relatively meager resources. We we believe that he spent somewhere between sixty and $75,000 of his own money mm-hmm. to take this case up to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, there is a typo. In the miracle case book about this, uh, when we did the translation from sixty to seventy-five thousand dollars in 1951 to 52, and translated it to uh, the equivalent amount today,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, what was supposed to have been 0. 0.5 million came out as five million. Mm, happens. Now, now, Burstyn spent a lot of money, a half million today, uh-huh. but not five million. I'm quite sure he never <laughs> had that kind of money. And so
0: I don't have a so. half million, so I don't, have, yeah, I don't have anything like that. So he, he's all in on this. He, he's decided that he's really got his teeth in it, and he's going to uh, fight it like the Dickens. Um, who, who, um, uh, who, 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 who brings the case, actually? Who are his lawyers? Does he have a team? Is the ACLU involved? Because we would think they would be. I just...
1: Oh, yes. Well, and at this point, it was the New York Civil Liberties Union. Mm-hmm. The, the ACLU is a very uh, dispersed organization. There is an umbrella organization, but there are state um, sub, uh, sub organizations. And mm-hmm. the New York Civil Liberties Union, actually, when the license commissioner threatened the Paris Theater's license, the New York Civil Liberties Union put out a public call that they would take on the case of any exhibitor who was willing to show the movie. They mm-hmm. were ready for a showdown, not only with the license commissioner of the city of New York, but they were ready for a showdown with the Catholics and the Catholic Legion of decency and mm-hmm. they saw the miracle as a really good vehicle. Now Burstyn had his own attorneys but he didn't have a lot of money and he didn't have a lot of backing from anyone other than the New York Civil Liberties Union and when the case goes to the Supreme Court then the American Civil Liberties Union takes over. What he did have in his own attorney though was a really committed what I call First Amendment warrior, a man named Ephraim London.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Ephraim London took the miracle case through both rounds of the new york appellate courts Mm -hmm. and then to the new york state supreme court when they won at the new york state supreme court that was the first of nine civil liberties cases that Ephraim London would take to the Supreme Court in mm-hmm. his career, and all nine of them he would win mm-hmm. so Burston had a very exceptional lawyer, and the two of them became very close personal friends um, as as part of this fight and I think they were both um, not egging each other on, but certainly a wonderful support group for each other.
0: Mm-hmm. So, could you t- actually take the case from um, through these various legal instances, from the beginning uh, of its uh, of its uh, filing through to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, what Boston is uh, who he's who he's bringing suit against is the Department of Education in the state of New York, mm-hmm. because the Department of Education was the overseers. Of the censors, mm-hmm. that's just where the, their home was in the department of education so mm-hmm. that that's who he's bringing suit against, and he's bringing suit against the Board of Regents, which runs the Department of Education mm-hmm. in New York state and It's very principled arguments based on free speech, free press, and also on separation of church and state mm-hmm. because what they are they're arguing that because the Catholic Church is putting so much pressure on the state. Actually, I should back up. The Catholic Church did put so much pressure on the state of New York that the state did rescind the Miracles license. Mm-hmm. So the license that Burston had won twice before is rescinded because of so much pressure coming from Catholics that the, that the license be taken away. So that gave London and, and Burston the opportunity to argue that that was pressure coming from one religion. Mm-hmm. Now, the New York State censors had been authorized to censor on the basis of sacrilege. They were authorized mm-hmm. to look for sacrilege. Mm-hmm. And London and Burston and the ACLU are now going to say that's not something mm-hmm. that a state agency should be doing. So they've got three really, what seemed to us, really strong arguments.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they lose in the New York State Appellate Division, which is the first round. They lose in the New York State Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. And then they wind up taking the -hmm. case to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they're they're basically using similar arguments. The state, on the other hand, is arguing it is perfectly within the state's police power to protect its citizens from degrading or immoral, sacrilegious, immoral, obscene, indecent the language of the statute. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly okay for us to protect our citizens from this. And legal precedent was with them there.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: the state had what it considered to be a legitimate argument, we're just trying to protect our people here. Mm-hmm. And that's an argument that the, sp- the Supreme Court had accepted for m- in many other areas for decades.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there, when, when Burstyn and London bring this case to the Supreme Court, it is by no means a sure thing that he's going to win. In fact, Hollywood the motion picture association of america refused to get involved and help Burston because their lawyers were afraid that he would lose hmm because they said they looked at the supreme court and said this is not a very promising time to be bringing a case like this remember the 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 bigger uh environment that this case is coming in is in the height of the anti-communist hysteria mm-hmm. of the early years of the McCarthy era, mm-hmm. talking about 1950, 51, and 52, when this case is coming up, this was a time when appeals to the right of people to speak freely are actually being restricted.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: people are self-censoring out of fear mm-hmm. in this in this era. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court looks at this and says. This is not something that the state of New York should be doing. It really has no business censoring for sacrilege. And in a unanimous decision, this is the surprising thing, in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court not only said that New York State should not be censoring for sacrilege, forced them to strike that from their statute, but also said that 1915 decision where we said that movies were not afforded the uh, free speech or free free press protections of the first amendment no longer apply Hmm, so that 1915 stranglehold has finally been lifted
0: so then in their decision did they cite the establishment clause you know saying okay look separation of church and state so you can't be involved in that and um the freedom of the press clause is that sort of the are are those the twin grounds of the decision
1: Actually, what they do, and this is something the Supreme Court typically does, the Supreme Court is very reluctant to make broad statements. Mm-hmm. So, what they'll do is they will look for the narrowest route they can possibly find in order to get to the result they want to get. Mm-hmm. The narrowest route here that was offered to them by the by Burston and London was the idea that the government uh, that, that censoring for sacrilege is something that should not be done. Mm-hmm. So what the court basically says is that's correct. Censoring for sacrilege is something that you know governmental censors are only going to be swayed by the loudest voices and therefore that should not be done. They really don't come, hmm. they, they don't reach the separation of church and state argument. They don't need to, mm-hmm. they've found in favor of Burston. they've overturned mutual mm-hmm. and, they're, and they stop.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting.
1: So yeah, yeah, they, a, really don't, they really don't get a, to that point. That's
0: a curious thing. Um, so now uh, we only have about fifteen minutes left, but uh, I want to uh, I, I want to try to get from one place to another. I want to I want to try to get from. The miracle decision in 1952, the sort of uh, the, the Burston versus the uh, 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 New York uh, Board of Education, if that's what it is, or whatever it is, um, I want to get from that point to 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 Debbie Does Dallas because there's a huge difference <laughs> between these things, um, and I just don't know how we got there. How, how did we get there?
1: yes yes there is and that, that's an awfully good question It's going to take more than 15 minutes <laughs>
0: give it your best shot
1: <laughs> but you know, the important thing about Burson versus wilson is and let me back up for, to that for just a second while it did overturn that 1915 mutual decision and it did apply the first amendment to movies it was not that clear uh-huh. because the court also said that while the movies deserve the first amendment protections they also said that a state could continue censoring using prior restraint, mm-hmm. provided it was done under a narrowly drawn statute.
2: they mm-hmm.
1: didn't say what that meant. But so they're not knocking out censorship; they're just knocking out censorship of sacrilege, mm-hmm. and saying that the First Amendment does apply here. But they're not being clear as to how it applied. Mm-hmm. So that left all kinds of murky stuff floating mm-hmm. around, mm-hmm. and made caused lots more censor, um, sorry, distributor challenges to come. And it's not until 1965, after many more distributor challenges come, each one chipping away at what the uh, at the censors' domain. Mm-hmm. It's not until nineteen sixty five that the court finally puts so many procedural restrictions on the censors that all the states give up except Maryland. Mm-hmm. Maryland is the only one that keeps censoring and they, they hang on until nineteen eighty one. But in nineteen sixty five all the states are out of the censoring business mm-hmm. except Maryland, it's it's over and done with, and then we get into the <laughs> the era that would allow something like a like a Debbie
0: Does Dallas, Debbie <laughs> Does Dallas or Deep yeah, most recently it's Who's Nayland Palin? I'm told that's you know that's a, you can oh sure that kind of, yeah, really, I, you know it's absolutely outrageous. Well, I think it's outrageous. I don't know, um, but yeah. So so is it the, is it the distributors that are continuing to bring suit uh, in, in, in local courts, and then it's getting kicked upstairs, or are these decisions uh, on the local level, that is the state level, are they simply citing? Um, Burston, saying, well, obviously it's the case you can't, you know, because Burston.
1: Yeah, it's both. We Mm -hmm. get a lot of action on the state level, and many uh, Supreme Court scholars and legal scholars tend to look only at the Supreme Court level and and forget what's going on in the states. Uh Because censorship was not a federal activity, it was a state activity, what happens in the state courts is actually more important, I would argue, than what's happening at the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. level. And in several states, it's the state Supreme Court that tells its state censor board, you're out of business. Uh Uh-huh. You're done. In some cases, it's, it, the U.S. Supreme Court never did that. When, 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 a, a, a Supreme, when a court says to a censor board, you can no longer do this, mm-hmm. it's, it's a state Supreme Court that does that. Mm-hmm. But the, the interesting thing is that while these state and local censors are getting chipped away at, the Hollywood Production Code, is also getting chipped away at. Mm-hmm. It's also facing major challenges mm-hmm. from motion picture makers. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, what, what my co-author, Ray Haberski does such a wonderful job talking mm-hmm. about, is, is how the Production Code Administration, Hollywood's own self-censorship, mm-hmm. is facing the same kinds of challenges the state censors are facing. And they're both being whittled away at the same time. And it's not coincidence, we don't think, that the state censor boards are done in 1965, and so is the Production Code
2: Administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and the, then we move into the era of the ratings system, which yeah, is right. what we have today.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So here's kind of a trick question, uh, <laughs> but I'd like you to, to try to speak to it if you can. The, the, um, it's not a trick question. It's a hard question. It's, it's something that, that actually Montesquieu thought a lot about. So is, is this a case of mores changing and then the law following? Or is it a case of the law leading and this allowing people to change more age, which then in turn
1: pushes that? Right. And, and that is, that is the $64,000 question yeah. here. Yeah. It, it really is. And the mores are definitely changing, we think, basically starting after World War II. Uh-huh. That's when we see people wanting to see more in the way of European movies, which mm-hmm. were more daring than what was being made in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. filmmakers looking at foreign films and saying, oh boy, we can't compete with this because we have the production code that's keeping right. us from, from doing these things. Uh, we argue in in our book that the Supreme Court was actually a little ahead of public opinion in 1952 mm-hmm. in, in this case, because most people thought that they would not find in favor of movies, because it is the, the McCarthy era, mm-hmm. but that they looked at this long line of free-speech cases um, coming from all different angles that I mentioned a little bit earlier, and looked at movies and several of the Supreme Court justices, according to their notes anyway, several of the Supreme Court justices who were relatively conservative in most respects, looked at the case of censoring movies as being analogous to the case of censoring newspapers. Mm -hmm. And they say, look, if we decided in 1931 that we can't be censoring newspapers, then we shouldn't be censoring movies either. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to know exactly what the Supreme Court was thinking, but from their conference notes at least, that's our our, our best guess, is that they were comparing it to newspapers and realizing that this was something that, that, mm-hmm. that government just did not belong in. Mm-hmm. So, in that respect, I think that the court was a little bit ahead of public... There was no big outcry in 1952 against censorship. Mm-hmm people aren't railing against censorship. It's not like there are people going to their state legislature saying, we want you to overturn this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's why I argue that I think the court was ahead of public opinion at least in 1952.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. What let,
1: happens, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, let me ask you to um, take off your historian hat just for a second and put on your citizen hat. Because uh, this, this, you know, when, when re- reading it as, as somebody who's just been through a presidential election and all this other business, uh, it, you know, it, it's... Are there did we get the uh result that we wanted from the elimination of censorship of films and and, and, and was it a kind of a, a slippery slope that we got on and couldn't get off or how should we understand this
1: And that is the good question that is the question that each individual needs to answer for him or herself because uh, right after so many of the restrictions were listed, lifted on the censors very famous, the the Dean of Film Critics at that time, Bosley Crowder, started talking about, okay, producers, it's now your job yeah, not true. to not to overdo this. It's your job to be responsible. Uh-huh. You've got this freedom now. Don't mess it up. Uh-huh. And in that respect, Bosley Crowther was very prescient because um, that's what would, in many people's minds, would exactly happen. That it would it would go from you know too many restrictions to no restrictions yeah. to the era of the VCR, yeah. when anything was was possible. Yeah. And did motion picture producers go too far? And uh-huh. that's a matter of the marketplace to decide, and it's a matter for each of us individually to decide. I think the important thing is that it's no longer something that courts are deciding.
0: Yeah, no, I think the courts have thrown up their hands and said pretty much anything goes. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that could change, too, if more change. changed. The, the thing that I'm kind of mm-hmm. – I think I talked about this last time when we we discussed uh, your first book, um, because I was reading Plato at the time. You know, this is an age-old question, and, and we – seem to be convinced that, or at least we say we're convinced, that uh, representations of things are different than things, and they cannot harm you. But, you know, I, I wonder about this. I really do. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but we say it again and again, that, you know, it's just a representation. It has no effect on anybody. It's It's art. It's just And
1: there yeah. and there you would be arguing Oliver Stone's position. <laughs> and that's how we end the book. We end the book by talking about Oliver Stone's movie Natural Born Killers, yeah, right. Where Oliver Stone was dragged into court by the uh victims of some people who claimed that they had perpetrated murders because they saw it in his movie. Yeah. And Oliver Stone does a very effective job of using the First Amendment to say, wait a minute, I I made the movie. I didn't tell this guy to go out and get a gun and start killing people. I made a movie. Um, And so we end the book on, you know, pretty much that question mark.
0: Yeah, it's the First Amendment as understood since 1952, or perhaps even 1965, because Oliver Stone's movies never could have been made in 1915. Oh, no. Yeah, no, it would have been impossible. So, I mean, so, d- just citing the law, I mean, I think isn't quite enough. You, you again, and this is the mm-hmm. beauty of your book, you also have to put it in a greater cultural context. We interpret the law entirely differently. The law is the same. Uh, you know, the First Amendment reads just like it did 250 years ago, uh, but we look at it and we see different things in it. You know, I'm actually reminded of the doctrine of continuing revelation. This is sort of uh, the the, uh, the, and I say this with all due respect, sort of the, the, the Christian trapdoor argument. So when they want to say, well, we don't have to do everything in the Bible, they'll, they'll talk about, um, you know, uh, continuing revelation. And I, I'm kind of a Christian myself, but you know, that we we say to ourselves, well, we interpret these things differently. The Bible hasn't changed, but we interpret it differently. And I think similarly here, we can vary. And your book does a great job of showing how, you know, the law hasn't changed, but we interpret it in an entirely different way than we ever did before. Uh, whether, you know, again, I, I always wonder whether once we start to um, to go down these roads, they have to get kind of a secular trend. In this case, toward uh, fewer restrictions on expression. Wh- whether we actually get the result that we want, now I just don't know. It's like the, it's like the situation just got out of hand. And now, if you go to the internet or any other different place, you can just see things that you just don't want to see, and you don't want other people to see them either. But you can always say, well, you know, it's free speech. So, I, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of an open question, and I would like to see more, you know, discussion of it. I mean, we should thank you for explaining to us, you and Ray, for explaining to us how we got into this situation. Um, and it is our own damn fault, obviously. Uh, but but whether, we, whether we're in the right place or not, I just, I don't know. It just seems like it's just, a, it's just uh, I, you know, I have a young son, and I have a daughter on the way. And gosh, I don't know. I just, I, I really do wonder about these things.
1: It changes your perspective, doesn't
0: it? It really does. It really, really does. Well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we really thank you for it. Um, Let me ask you our uh, traditional uh, final question here on um, new books in history, and that is, um, what are you working on now, Laura?
1: Well, I've taken a little bit of a side road, and I'm working now on deportations, mm-hmm. deporta- ideologically motivated deportations mm-hmm. during the Cold War era. I find the Cold War era utterly fascinating. Of course, the Cold War era is um, the, the, the the broader environment of the miracle case, mm-hmm. of what's going on in the mm-hmm. miracle case. And now I want to look at we the people that we kicked out during the Cold War era mm-hmm. for their political views and why.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How, how we did it and, and why we did it, and some of the people that we excluded from even coming into the country hmm. in the first place.
2: Hmm. Hmm. And
1: I'm looking at some of them. Some of them, I think, will read some of the cases of people, people who were either deported or excluded for political reasons. I think people will read today as... as Horror stories.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It's idea. pretty.
1: It's pretty amazing uh, the lack of due process mm-hmm. that aliens, um, even long-term resident aliens and people who are trying to get into the country, face. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of Americans are not aware that uh, that long-term resident aliens and particularly people trying to get into the country do not have the same rights um, to due process mm-hmm. as American citizens do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And that's idea. the next route. Well, I think that's terrific, and it's absolutely consonant with what you've done with this book because you know one of the beautiful things about both of these books that you've written is that. But, you know, they do show us uh, how... You know how again I come back to this point that the, the black letter law kind of remains the same, but we interpret it in such different ways as to allow entirely almost contradictory behaviors. And I, and I do think you're right, having studied this just a little bit myself, that you know the things that were done. I mean, the most famous instance of of this of of sort of uh, you know t- treatment, but you know bad treatment of large groups of people was the internment of the Japanese during World War II. But it didn't stop there at all. I mean, during the 50s, as you say, we we uh, there were. Yeah, there were all kinds of things that uh, went on that I think would shock Americans today, just absolutely shock them. And they yeah. were done by right thinking people with clear consciences.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely sincerely believed they were doing the right thing. And we need to, we, we can't judge them from yeah. 21st century yeah. you know, sensibilities. We need to try to put ourselves yeah. into their shoes, yeah, too. Exactly you know, right. I was thinking you were mentioning the doctrine of continuing revelation, which I had not heard of before. Yeah. And I'm wondering how closely you think that fits with the, the legal doctrine of. The, the living Constitution
0: yeah I think it 's the same thing. I, I only Thanks. know continuing revelation because I was just talking to a friend about it and how we were trying you know what do, you know I was talking to somebody about actually it was about this um you know what do we do about gay marriage I mean clearly you know it, the the bible doesn 't really condone gay marriage <laughs> i don 't think there 's any doubt about that, but i you know I think we probably should condone gay marriage, so how do i what, how do i how do I do this I mean and we you know the, the doctrine of continuing revelation gives you a the the option to, to sort of to 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 think that something else is being revealed to you, and I think the living constitution is exactly the same thing. Yeah, I I think that you know I I'm, I tend to be a somewhat of a cynic when it comes to. The way in which judges and courts decide things I, I, I kind of have the feeling, and I only say this because I know how I make decisions that i I go into them knowing the result that I want, and then I find arguments for the, the result and i when I look at the Supreme Court, I kind of see the same thing every time you know people talk about how it 's technical and everything, but i i don't really't i don 't I don't see it but anyway, I, you know I really enjoyed reading both this book and your your previous book, and we hope that um, when you 're done with this this book uh, this, this, uh, this current research project that you come back on the show.
1: Good. Thank you very much. All right, Laura, And thank well, you for a wonderful program. I love listening every week. Right, you, well, have, so you bring in such interesting, interesting and different topics. Well, thanks. It's absolutely my
0: pleasure. You take care now, okay? Thank you, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Laura Wittern-Keller, who, together with Ray Haberski, is the author of The Miracle Case, Film Censorship, and the Supreme Court. I'm Marshall Poe the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week.